0: Let's take a moment and let's pray again. Father, take our hearts and our minds. Take the words that are offered to you. As we, as your people, desire to look and see what you have to say to us through this passage in Matthew, give us clarity in our thought and help us to see Christ in it all. Help us to have the assurance of the salvation offered And, Father, help us to have the living hope in Christ. Take us and minister to us. In Jesus' name, amen. I wonder, are you like me, and you receive the literature that comes through your door, and you glance at it, and some of it automatically goes into the recycling bin, but there's some that will keep you looking at it for a little while longer. You read it, and it's something from BT, or it's something from Virgin Media, or this week it happened to be Specsavers Opticians. You get them all the time. And you read it, and you see this great deal, and you think, that's fantastic. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go for that. That's something I really need. It's at a great price, or it's a great offer, and so I'll go for it. And you're all set to lift the phone. Or to go onto the internet or make your way down to whatever store it is offering you this offer. And then you see that dreaded little star that's at the end of the sentence just above the last letter. And you automatically know that once you see that little star, you have to look somewhere for an extra meaning. And if it happens to be with BT Broadband, they tell you that your first three months are free. Then it goes up to 999, and then it goes up to 1799, and you realize the offer just isn't as great as it seemed. Are those times whenever the mainland supermarkets offered us free petrol, but it really wasn't free to us, because the little star told us excludes Northern Ireland. We get sucked in. I get sucked into these offers, thinking, these are great but as we go through it, we come across small print that tells us differently. And as we think about what these companies and these marketeers are trying to to do, we realize that they're not being genuine with us. Oh, they're being honest enough because they're giving you all the details there on the page, but they're not being genuine. They're not being upfront to tell you here's everything in the big print. I have yet to come across a company that tells you here's all the big print. There's no small print. It's all here clear for you to see. We get sucked in only to fall down at the last hurdle with the small print because the people that we are trusting are not genuine. We come feeling hard done by. We think that we are losing out. And in our society today, we appreciate people who are genuine. We are living in a time that loves to put smoke screens up to hide the truth. Our persona goes on to shield what is the reality. And our culture feeds on fiction from soap operas and the sense... uh, Sorry, I'm not having a great time with words this morning. Sensationalizing of events on reality television or those morning television shows... Or the magazine articles. That's what feeds our culture rather than dealing with the reality of the world around us in its honesty and its truth. And Matthew 23 is the strongest challenge Jesus gives to the Pharisees about the lives that they live. They are not genuine. They are not being real with the people whom they have charge over responsibility to teach and instruct in the ways of God, those they have under their care who they lead in worship of God. And this morning, our passage comes in three sections, the two that we read and the middle bit that we missed out. Verses 1 to 12 introduce the main point of the chapter where Jesus is addressing the crowd around him. And then verses 13 to 32 record seven sets of woes that Jesus declare against the Pharisees. And then the final bit, 33 to 39, completed the temple teachings of Jesus. And we're going to look at these three sections as we have them in Scripture. There is so much in them that we can take and apply. We could be here for the rest of the day. So we'll look at the three sections in their biblical context, and then at the end, we'll come and see what the overall themes are that we can learn from. So let's dive in and see what the Word itself says to us. The events of chapter 23 start in chapter 22 and verse 18. We thought about this last week, and this is a busy teaching day for Jesus. At the end of chapter 22, Jesus has silenced his critics and those who would accuse him. From that point on, they no longer come to him, trying to trap him and trick him. That said, a line is marked in the sand, and Jesus has silenced those who would come against him. They present no more questions. They don't question his authority. The reality is they go and they plot about how to get rid of Jesus. And having dealt with the Sadducees and the Pharisees in a very public arena, Jesus now turns to the crowds that have gathered to hear him and in the crowds are his own disciples. And so he starts by affirming the position of the Pharisees. He doesn't deny their existence or their importance. Teachers, those who would teach from the law, traditionally would have sat, and those people who came to listen would gather around them. And we have in this gospel account a record uh, of Jesus sitting in stories that we read of Jesus sitting down to teach and the people coming around. And in the passage that we have, we have this interesting phrase of sitting in the seat of Moses or Moses' seat. This wasn't just a responsibility the Pharisees had of sitting in a physical seat. It was like a professional chair that we would know in the world of academia, The Pharisees taught the law that had been handed down from Moses. They taught it with everything that had been tagged on with their tradition and everything over the years. And throughout all the generations of Israel, there had always been these teachers of the law. Those who read the law, brought it to the people, taught it to them so that they would understand it. And that is understood what it means to sit in Moses' chair. And in this statement... Jesus is affirming their position, that they are teachers, that they have authority. But what he does say is that even though they teach and even though we listen, we are to listen and accept, but we are not to be like them. It seems that they are to listen to the teaching, but not to follow the example of the Pharisees. They taught one thing and did another. And this is what starts what is a a list of words, or it's one word, in each of the woes that we will look at, hypocrites, hypocrisy. And we know it today. That's why we appreciate genuine people in our societies, people who do what they say they're going to do, not say one thing and do another. So everything that Jesus is teaching centers around genuineness, being genuine in who we are in Christ. So in the record that we have here, Matthew presents us with five characteristics for which the Pharisees were rebuked. And the people are to be aware of what they are and to be aware of what the Pharisees are up to. Firstly, it's what we've said, they do not practice what they preach. As teachers, they had the responsibility of teaching the law and living it but it seems that this wasn't happening. They would happily stand up and know their privileged position in society and they would teach. But as soon as they came away from that teaching session, they went back to living the lives that they desired to live. The lives, as we will see, of popularity. The lives at which they were seen in the marketplace. The lives in which they were seen as good, holy, pious people. So firstly, they did not practice what they preached. And secondly, they were unwilling to undertake themselves what they prescribed to others. This moves on from not practicing what they preach because this is the exact opposite of what Jesus did, how he taught and how he lived. Jesus taught and he lived what he was teaching. So he knew fully that no matter, that not only was he teaching his people, but that he was living out that teaching in his own life as he lived with his disciples and as they moved around on the ministry that he had. He desired and still desires his followers to walk with him and learn from him. He desires that as we are in relationship with him, we will be just as he is. The accounts that we have in the Scriptures of what Jesus did, where he went, how he treated people, everything of him is to be our roadmap for how we are to live. Thirdly, the people are warned that the Pharisees love to show off, that they have no natural right to this status in society, but it's only through their showing off that it comes. And verse 5 mentions that wonderful word that I struggled to get over, the phylacteries. Phylacteries are the two small leather boxes that observant Jews wear on their arms and heads during weekday morning prayers. And it seems that the larger the box and the more elaborate the leather straps that held them in place, the more pious the Jew was seen to be. I suppose in the Northern Ireland culture, the bigger the Bible we have, it shows that we are a better Christian, or at least that's what it maybe would have been in years gone by. They loved to show off. They loved to show their authority. An example of this is in Luke 18, where the Pharisee and the tax collector go into the temple to pray. The the Pharisee stands up front and says, Lord, thank you for who I am. The prayer is all about who he is. The tax collector at the back says these simple words, Lord, have mercy on me a sinner. These men, these Pharisees, they loved to show off, and the people were warned about this. The fourth charge brought against the Pharisees is that the people are to watch out for is the love that they had for titles and being paid respect as they walked around. I don't know if you've ever seen any of the movies that interpret biblical scenes. But the Pharisees are always the ones in the flowing white robes, very ornate dressed and uh, tidy beards and headgear. And they look as if they walk around with this um, air of, of grace around them as they move along. They loved their titles. They loved to be seen. They loved to be people who were paid respect to. They loved to be noticed and set apart from everyone else. There was no sense in them of identifying with the worshiping community of God. They would stay away from certain places. They would remain on the fringes to be seen, but not integrate fully because of the risk in their eyes of the transmission of sin, of uncleanliness in dealing with sinners. They didn't identify with the people whom they ministered to. And the final charge is that the Pharisees misunderstood their ministry completely. They don't realize that they are to serve rather than to be served. Their ministry was to be one of example. Practice what you preach. But instead, they got out of it what they could to make their lives easier. The people are warned by Jesus to beware of the Pharisees. Beware the of how they act and how they live. They have an authoritative position. They sit in the seat of Moses in their teaching. But the people are challenged to listen to the teaching and follow it rather than the ways of the Pharisees. And this raises the question that as we read this and think, well, that's fine, Jesus saying it to the crowd in the temple and the Pharisees of that day, What relevance does it have for today? Well, it does have a contemporary relevance for today. As we follow Jesus and worship as part of his body, we are to be aware and to hold accountable our leaders in what they do and what they say. And we looked at this earlier in the year. Christoph was preaching um, about how we who teach and preach are to be held accountable to the words uh, that we say and the actions uh, that we undertake. But that doesn't give a free license. It isn't a free license for everyone else to, to hold those who have that responsibility of teaching and leading, to hold their leaders accountable to personal preference and the way that people would like things done. But whenever we hold each other accountable, those in leadership and those not in leadership, we are to be accountable to the Bible to the biblical standard of leadership that Jesus has taught and that God expects. This means on our part, we must learn and understand the biblical expectations of a leader and understand that leadership in whatever shape it comes, in eldership, in committee level, those responsible for leading our organizations, it's not about our little preferences and how we think it should be but that each of us are held accountable to how the Bible says we should be and how we act in leadership and the decisions we make in leadership. We move on to the central uh, chunk of the passage. We didn't read it because, to help you along the way, we're going to put some uh, slides up as we look at what we know as the seven woes. And these are Jesus' strongest attack against the Pharisees and the lives that they live. And the first six woes can be seen as three pairs with matching themes. The first pair speak of keeping people out of the kingdom of heaven. The second pair focus on the distorted perspective, which puts concern with detail before the basic principles of religion and ethics. And the third pair contrast outward and inward purity. And then the seventh woe brings the denunciation to its climax with the charge of complicity in the murder of God's messengers. And it should be noted that the central meaning of each woe is the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. So if you have your Bible open, page 992, Matthew 23, starting at verse 13, we will make our way through these seven woes. They will come up on the screen as well so that you can keep track with that. So the first of the woes is found in verses 13 to 14. The Pharisees taught about God but did not love God. They did not enter the kingdom of heaven themselves, nor did they let others enter it. Their problem was that they rejected God's kingly rule on their lives So they had their own program and their own agenda for the people they had responsibility for. Anyone who would show any form of sign of faith would be put down because that faith was seen to be simple and not like their faith, the faith of the Pharisees, which was really no faith at all. These were people who were responsible for the care of God's people, Yet Jesus says they are the biggest hindrance of people entering the kingdom. Have we ever thought, and we'll come and think about this later as well, have we ever thought how we may be hindrances to people entering the kingdom? Our words, our actions. Each of us, in our responsibility in following Jesus has that responsibility to share our faith, to share the love that we know from Jesus Christ. But in how we live, in the discussions that we enter, and the hard line that we take on certain issues that really don't need to be taken, are we more of a stumbling block to the kingdom of heaven for those around us than someone who presents Christ in his fullness? The second woe, in verse 15, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. In this charge, or this woe, the Pharisees are rightly said that they are preaching God, but they're converting people to dead religion, thus making those converts twice as much sons of hell as they were themselves. This is their legalistic approach to mission. There seems to be enthusiasm that they will go across the lands and the seas to to get people, but it's misdirected because it seems their main aim for mission was to enhance the numbers and prestige of their party. They wanted people just like them. And let's face it, we all want that a little bit. Over recent weeks, I've had conversations with people and we've entered into topics of discussion and debate. And at the end of it, I think, wouldn't it be great if those people were just like me and thought just like me? Because it would make my life a whole lot easier. But the problem with that is I wouldn't be able to engage to get to what are the fundamentals of Scripture? Whenever we are looking for people to befriend, to encourage, are we looking for people who are just like us? Whenever we go out and we desire to tell people about Jesus, who are we looking for? People just like us, who will toe the party line that we have brought about are we going to all the world, teaching and preaching that Jesus is Lord? It is him who sets the agenda. It is him who is the author and perfecter of our faith and not what we add into it. The Pharisees were looking people to enhance their numbers and the prestige of their party. May we never seek people who are just like us, but seek people as God seeks them sees them as, as souls needing him so that like our souls, they will be nurtured to be like Christ rather than like us. We get the third woe in verses 16 to 22. Woe to you, blind guides. You say if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You fools, Which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift on it, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And he who swears by the temple swears by it. And by the one who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. In this, the Pharisees are being condemned for breaking solemn oaths. They taught taught that um, an oath sworn by the temple or altar was not binding, but that if sworn by the gold ornamentation of the temple or by sacrificial gift on the altar, it was binding. The gold and the gifts, however, were not the sacred. They had to come to the temple. They had to come to the altar to become sacred. The Pharisees were not interested in the temple, but very interested in the gold of the temple. They were not interested in the altar, but very interested in the gifts on it. they waved the binding nature of the former in order to enforce the latter. And it was all to their own advantage. They were in it for what they could get out of it. And in doing that, they were misleading people. They weren't being genuine in teaching people what it meant to follow God and his worship. The Pharisees are condemned for loving the things, the accoutrements, everything that came with the temple and the altar, rather than understanding that they needed the love of the place and center of worship and what the altar meant as a place of presentation of gifts to God. One of the first things, whenever I first came to visit Kirkpatrick, whenever I knew that I was being assigned as an assistant One thing I really did enjoy was this building we're in right now. It was a a warm building. It was a a building that was welcoming in many ways. You may differ, I don't know, but for me, that's what it was on first impressions. As someone who enjoys the organ and playing the organ, I was excited to see the organ, but as someone who enjoys... uh, more modern music that doesn't fit so well in an organ, the drums and the piano, the setup of the front, the centrality of a pulpit with the Word of God, that tradition that we have in Presbyterianism that the Word of God is central in everything that we do. But I've had to develop, and it has come easily over this past year, that I need to forget about this building I need to forget about an organ and a piano and drums and a pulpit. And I have developed a heart for those who meet in this building, those who come to worship, because that is what it's about. As we worship as a community, it is not about what we offer in terms of Monday to Saturday, or indeed the different elements we include in a Sunday morning, but what it is about is the community. Is the coming together in genuineness in worship that together we can glorify God as we offer ourselves together to him? Do we love the building more than we love God and what the building stands for, a place of public worship and community? Or are we so caught up in the building and what happens in it and everything else that we lose sight of who God is? Verses 23 and 24 move us on to the fourth woe. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides. You strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. The Pharisees taught the law, but did not practice some of the most important parts of it, justice, mercy, and faithfulness to God. They obeyed the finer points of the law, such as tithing spices, but not the real meat of the law, the law that was set up to worship God and the community coming together and protecting the community of God. Michael Green comments that they commit monstrous camel sized sins while taking every precaution against allowing an unclean gnat to bring ceremonial impurity to their drink. They strain out a minor impurity and swallow a major one. They had lost sight of the big picture. They had lost sight of their God. And one of the themes that have been coming up over the past number of weeks as we've been reading is our understanding and fuller understanding of God and who He is as the Bible teaches us. What are our major concerns? Are our major concerns living a life that we'll do our best, and we'll get there in the end because it always does work out okay in our thinking? Or do we desire to live a life that encompasses God every day of our lives? So in other words, as we live, God is first in absolutely everything we do, in our thoughts, in our actions, and in our words. The words are sometimes the hardest for us because it's so easily to have a word slip out that cannot be taken back. The words of grace that are needed in various situations, but also words seasoned with salt at times when they need to be. The Pharisees were so concerned about the minor things, about getting it right in what they offered in their spices and their tithing, that they absolutely missed the care of their people. And righteousness, faithfulness to God in trusting him for their salvation and trusting him to meet every need that they have. The fourth woe, they were so concerned about the small details that they missed out completely on what the big picture of God's worship community was. The fifth woe is about what the Pharisees were all about, the externals, how they looked. 25 and 26, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be cleaned they presented an appearance of being cleaned. As they stood up in their magnificent robes, outwardly they looked clean. They walked the walk and they talked the talk. And you couldn't blame the people for thinking, yes, they have it all sorted and sussed. They looked self-restrained, not involved in carnal matters, taking themselves away from the things of the world, yet inside they were dirty. They seethed with hidden worldly desires, carnality. They were full of greed and self-indulgence. And Jesus remarks that the external is only as clean and tidy as the internal is. The heart issues will reflect on the physical, how we are inside, not the regular rhythm of our natural hearts, but our spiritual soul. How we are in relationship with God is what must be the first thing of our concern so that it will flow from us as we desire to live as Christ in this world. What are our heart issues? Are we more concerned about how we look on the outside, about the places where we go and who we're seen with, and the particular stance we take on things, are we actually more concerned about being genuine in our hearts? No matter what the world around us and our peers will think, but being genuine in our hearts, so that as Christ indwells every aspect of our lives from our soul out, so our outward appearance will be that of Christ. We'll move on to the sixth woe, in verses 27 to 28. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. This woe deals with the taboo within the Pharisaic culture the uncleanness of death and dead bodies. Every year at the start of the pilgrim season, the tombs would be whitewashed. And this wasn't for cosmetic purposes, but was to act as a warning so that people wouldn't go past them and accidentally touch them, because in touching them, there was belief that you were contracting uncleanness. And the Pharisees exhibited themselves as righteous on account of being scrupulous keepers of the law, but were in fact not righteous. Their mask of righteousness hid a secret inner world of ungodly thoughts and feelings. They were full of wickedness. They were like the whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but inside were full of dead men's bones. The externals. How we present ourselves comes up yet again the genuineness of us in our relationship with Christ. Is it about what we do and who we are, or is it about the heart relationship with Jesus Christ that takes work every single day, that as we read the pages of Scripture, we catch a glimpse and a vision of God and Jesus Christ. The seventh and final woe is in verses 29 through to 32. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous, and you say, If we had lived in the days of our forefathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the sin of your forefathers the pharisees professed a higher regard for the dead prophets and they claimed that they would never have persecuted these men as they had been they would never have murdered them but in fact from this woe that jesus brings on them we see that they are cut from the same cloth as the persecutors and murderers they too had murderous blood in their veins and this is how jesus saw them because he knew Of the plans of the Pharisees, the plans that they had to execute him. And instead of going after the things of God and listening to his message, they would do away with what was the truth and continue to be the museum keepers in the temple of their own ways, the ways that were comfortable and familiar. They would never have chased God's prophet out of town. They would never have done anything like that but yet, in fact, it is exactly what they did in executing Jesus Christ. They did not accept his authority or accept his teaching. Jesus holds them as the ultimate hypocrites in everything that they say and do. And the seven woes cut deep into the pharisaical system. And much like the warnings Jesus gave the people from verses 1 to 12 about what to watch out for, they are contemporary issues for us today. But we need to finish the remainder of the passage before we we put it all together. And verses 33 to 39 are a lovely piece of writing and take us to the very heart of Jesus. We see that the heart of Jesus is about the love for the nation, God's people And it is brought home to us in two positive and two negative ways in these verses. First on the negative side, he unmasked the Pharisees. He showed them for who they were. He calls a spade a spade. They are a brood of vipers. But he loves them. And this is why he says it. He cares so much that he wants them to depart from their false road false road that they are on following their own ideas and ambitions and walk along the road that will take them to the Father. A road that is genuine faith. And the second negative point is that he leaves them. We see this in verse 1 of chapter 24. It says, Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came to him. Jesus has had enough. That's it. They're not accepting who he is. He is in the center of Judaism, the focus of Israel's hopes, the place of national worship and the the place of divine revelation. And it is here that God's Son, the Messiah, is rejected. It is here that the Pharisees make up their minds to kill him. And so, as love is denied, it withdraws. And that's the physical... Let's move on to the positive. And we have to come back to the thought that Jesus loves them. Despite the resistance and disobedience of the Pharisees and of the people in general, Jesus loves them and goes on reaching out to them. And this is another positive way. It's the reaching out nature of Jesus, even up to his final breath. And verse 34 has a significant word, therefore it comes after all the woes so jesus has put out all these woes against the pharisees about what they've done and who they are in misleading people hypocrites but because they are like this therefore he is sending teachers he is sending those prophets and wise men he still reaches out to make them the people god wanted them to be and that's what he still does Even though we may reject him and think that we have nothing to do with him, believer and non-believer alike, in different circumstances, Jesus still loves and reaches. And he says to each of us this morning, we could so easily be condemned as the Pharisees were condemned. But because of his great love, he still reaches, and he still calls, and he still says, come to me, and I will make you genuine and give you genuine faith so that you will be my people. So as we finish, how do we take this into our contemporary worlds? Well, we have to go back to the word that comes up time and time again, hypocrisy. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, were hypocrites. They were not genuine. They said they offered something great, but in fact, they didn't. They sucked people in and didn't tell them about the small print. Listening to this, it would be very easy for each of us to think that this message is for our ministers, our pastors, and our elders, because they are the modern leadership of our churches. And on one level, that is true But the fact is, if we are followers of Jesus, we are all leaders in some way. We may be leaders in organizations in our congregation. We may be leaders in our homes, people of influence in our communities. And we may be the only spiritual leaders in our places of work. And I admit that in preparing this, for me it was as if if I had a mirror sitting on my desk And it was the hardest thing to read and to think about. Because as I read, as I looked, all I could see was the feeling in my own life about what it means to be genuine. But as hard as it is to accept it, I know that I must endeavor to be genuine in everything I do. And I challenge you to take up that same mirror this morning and set it in front of you, and have a look in it. We may not like what we see, but it must happen so that we can seek correction for the areas in our lives where we are more like the Pharisees than like the disciples of Jesus. So put the mirror up and inspect it in these seven ways. Inspect how we help others come to understand the kingdom of God. Are we a hindrance or a help? Inspect how we help others to come to know Jesus more in their walk with him. Do we need to be intentional with our conversations with other Christians? We need to be in, uh, inspect and see how honest we are in what we say and what we do. We need to inspect that mirror and see how we carry out everything that we are commanded to and not get stuck in the finer points of our faith. Are you looking at the big detail in what it means to follow Jesus Christ? We must inspect how we are on the inside rather than the external appearance that we present to people. We are to look in that mirror and see how we present ourselves as followers of Jesus to each other, as his children. Do we truly practice what we preach? And the seventh, we are to inspect that mirror and see if we build each other up in the body of Christ rather than bringing people down through our hurtful words and actions. And we won't get it right. We will be honest and say we won't get it right, but we can try. And we have the encouragement that Jesus loves us and will continue to reach us so that we will be genuine followers of him. How genuine are we? Are we like the advertisements from BT that tell us of great broadband offers but the small print reveal the deal not to be as good as it looks? Or are we people who call a spade a spade and show those around us what it really means to follow the one who gave his all for us? Let's pray. Father, this morning we have looked at a long and a difficult passage. And what we've offered in the past are with you in everything of our worship, we pray that you will accept, but we also pray that you will accept us. Help us, Lord, to continue to come to you, to know that we are to be genuine people, to know that we are loved by you and you continue to bring us on that path of perfection, that path of righteousness, so that we will be like Christ. Help us as we go in to our normal work-a-day week tomorrow. Help us to know what it means to be a genuine follower of Jesus and not to be a hypocrite like those that the Pharisees were. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.